Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. My name's Martin Willis. I'm your host. Today is podcast number 126 with Colleen Fesco, and we're going to be discussing Cape Ann paintings. We'll also be discussing a few other things in the topic of artwork. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter or you'd like to like us on Facebook, those icons are right on our website. If you'd like to contact me, that's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. Hi, I'm joined with Colleen Fesco. You may know her from the Antiques Roadshow. How are you doing, Colleen? Very well, Martin. Thank you. This podcast is going to be up for a while, but we have an event that's a dated event, January 12th coming up, and I want to talk a little bit about that. You're going to give a lecture on Cape Ann School Artists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, James Julia Auction is bringing down uh, their collection of the John Gale paintings that are going to be sold on January 30th. And John Gale was a... Boston area collector who specialized in purchasing and self-curating a really wonderful collection of Cape Ann paintings. And these are the Cape Ann painters from the 20th century. So you have some wonderful Hibberds and Lester Stevens and Frederick Mulhoft and uh, all the great luminaries of the 20th century of that school. Now we're going to be talking about a few different subjects, but for right now, let's talk a little bit about the Cape Ann school. But Finishing this up, this is the Rockport Art Association, and it's January 12, 2013, for anyone that listens to this in the following years. Let's talk a little bit first about John Gale. What do you know attracted him to this genre of collecting? Well, John was born in Vermont, and early on his collecting was geared towards uh, Aldro Hibbert's Vermont scenes, and uh, As you probably know, Hibbard was one of the founders of the Rockport Art Association and spent his summers in Rockport, but then uh, traveled to Vermont where he painted those wonderful and quite luminous Vermont scenes. It's amazing that as someone who paints myself, I know that there is, uh, I think Renoir or someone may have said that there's no true white in nature. And uh, Hibbard is known actually for painting so many different tones of white and if you really look at an Aldro Hibbert painting really closely, you can see all these beautiful colors. Uh, uh, one of my favorite artists. Um, is there anyone else in the Cape Ann School that you think would do accomplished winter scenes such as Hibbert? Well, Hibbert really, uh, Hibbert's forte really was uh, the winter scenes in Vermont. And um, I had the opportunity of appraising uh, a painting that's owned by the city of Boston uh, that was brought in by Mayor Menino to uh, the Antiques Roadshow last year in 2012. And uh, it was a really wonderful painting. It was sort of the quintessential example of, uh, of Hibbard's winter scenes. And in doing some research for the piece, I read an article from 1913 where they were saying that when many painters painted snow, they painted white paint. 
And when Hibbert painted snow, he really painted snow. And I think you can see that in his best pieces, of which uh, the Gale Collection has a number. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the various artists that are known as Cape Ann School, because it kind of crosses over all different types of um, art. Uh, And it starts, we think of uh, uh, early painting in the 19th century, uh, Gloucester has always been a, uh, a mecca for artists, and probably the best-known artist uh, from the early 19th, from the 19th century, rather, was Fitzhenry Lane, who was in fact a Gloucester native who went on to study in Boston at, uh, at Pendleton Lithographers. Uh, after Lane, there was Homer, there was Silva, there was William Morris Hunt. There was Twachtman, there was Hassam. Uh, artists for generations have been attracted not only by the light, but also by the topography, um, which is glacial in, in origin, I suppose, and the result being these amazingly abstracted rocky plains uh, in Dogtown and on the shore and really throughout Cape Ann. When I think of the Cape Ann School I mostly think of people that live there, but it's not necessarily. It's just some people that spent time there painting. A lot of the artists, especially the ones in the uh, early 20th century, often lived in in Manhattan or in Connecticut and spent their summers in... um, in Gloucester or Rockport, and they would come up, rent houses and studios, and then their friends would come up. So it really became something of a summer event that grew and grew and, and, and grew. Now, I read somewhere where they called uh, Frederick Mulhop the dean of Cape Ann. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, Mulhop has always been a favorite of mine. Years ago, I had the opportunity of, of appraising a painting that the local funeral home, in fact, in, in Gloucester, had been given by Mulhop's widow in payment for his last exit, as it were. Wow. And uh, it's funny, you can find some wonderful paintings in funeral homes. Hospitals, too. Uh, but I digress. Yes. And, uh, I've actually had an oil <laughs> delivery person that had some wonderful things. Well, when the going gets tough, artists pay pay with their paintings. Yeah. Uh, but Mohawk was wonderful. He uh, he and Felice Waldo Howell and uh, and a few others from that period really mastered the broken brushstroke beautifully. And their paintings in all light and then in you know highlighted scenes really glisten uh, with impressionistic impasto. When I was looking at the different artists that were in the Cape Ann School, quite different genres. You go all the way back to uh, Sloan and uh, Teresa Bernstein. I want to talk a little bit about Teresa Bernstein for a second. But, you know, that's the Ashcan School, uh, which Ashcan, for uh, listeners that aren't familiar with that, is basically uh, there were scenes that were painted of the poor, mostly uh, genre scenes in New York City, I guess, in the early 1900s. I guess that's basically where that comes from. But I want to talk a little bit about Teresa Bernstein uh, because I had handled a work of hers and I thought she was long gone and she was like 105 and still still painting. And you said you knew a little bit about Teresa. Well, she was certainly a force of nature and a great promoter of both of her own fine work and that of her husband, William Meyerwitz. 
And you had mentioned earlier the different schools and styles that had come to uh, the North Shore. And that's, that's really consistent. The North Shore has always been there for every period of painting. It was there for the 19th century artists. It was there for the late 19th century artists. It was early, there for early 20th century. It was there for the Ashcan. It was there for the American Impressionists. And it was also uh, a place where abstract artists came to uh, explore the landscape and the style. So if you would, could you name some other artists in the Cape, Cape Ann School? Well, Milton Avery was there, for example. Cecilia Bow was a big part of the of the whole North Shore art movement. Teresa Bernstein, contemporary artist Nell Blaine. Frank Duvenick was also an important member of the school who brought his Duvenick boys uh, along for summers and for painting adventures. Haley Lever was there. Uh, Willard Metcalf. Uh, almost every artist that you can think of either spent a good bit of time or certainly visited the Cape. Well, I was kind of surprised to see that Mark, Mark Rothko was in that list. You know, just as the artists of the Ashcan School had come to visit, the the Cape was a very interesting resource for the abstract artists. Uh, Nell Blaine was here, and um, you know Robert Motherwell, all of the abstract artists came for a visit. And one of my favorite artists um, of old time, or older times, I should say, is uh, Maxfield Parish. Uh, and a lot of times when you hear the name Maxfield Parish, you think of Prince. But uh, when I have actually viewed some of his oil paintings, they're just unbelievable. They're just wonderful. He was an extraordinary artist. Uh, to my mind, I associate him more with New Hampshire and with the Cornish art colony. Right. But yeah. he and his father did spend um, early years uh, in the Gloucester area. I think I read somewhere where he did some etchings in in the North Shore, but I'm, I, I, I'm really unclear on that. I think more of his father as doing etchings of Anasquam and... Um, and that area of Cape Ann. Okay, as far as, as record prices for artists, of course, every, most people realize that Mark Rothko um, would be considered the highest selling of any of the artists that were involved in the Cape Ann School. But when you think of Cape Ann School, you think of, in the early days, Fitz Henry Lane, which used to be known as Fitzhugh Lane. I think they found out on some records or something that, that yes. his name is actually Fitz Henry Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's probably the most commanding artist of the Cape Ann School besides Rothko, wouldn't you say? Well, I, you know, getting back to Rothko, he was much more of a visitor to Cape Ann than, uh, than Lane was. And, and Lane and was actually born there, right? Lane was born there and died there. And uh, there were also a number of artists who I think of much more uh, in line with the, with the Cape Ann School than, than some others who, who really did just, just visit. Uh, but that said, I had the opportunity to handle the sale of five Fitzhenry Lanes. Uh, the last was wow. a spectacular scene of Manchester by the Sea, and that piece realized nearly $6 million. That's unreal. Now, was that the one that originated in California? It was in a California home? Yes, it was. Yeah, I heard about that one. Yeah. All right, let's move on um, to other subjects. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about you, how you got involved in the art world. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, my undergraduate degrees were in art history and philosophy, and my father had a very good sense of humor and early on said, that's terrific because if one ever gets too successful, you can fall back on the other. Um, After that, I worked at the Child's Gallery in Boston, and then I worked with Wayne Anderson Vestey Corporation, and he was a very, very fine Art consultant and our clients were IBM, Chemical Bank, AT&T, Chevron. Oh, it was a corporate art. Yes, it was corporate art. And we had offices in Boston, New York, and in Geneva. And then I was the head of the painting department uh, and vice president of development at Skinner's Auction for 20 years. I also taught art history uh, at Mount Ida College, and uh, I write a good deal about late 19th and early 20th century paintings. When we were talking before this interview a few days ago, we were talking about the changes that the Internet has brought to this business. And I like to talk about that a lot because uh, we both have lived through the times before. I can easily recall when you used to drive around with your art books and a milk crate in the back of your car, uh, hoping to find a piece of art at an auction or in an antique shop and to quickly run out to your car. And now people are doing this with their cell phone. <laughs> so what do you think the change is? Is it too much information out there? Well, my, my concern is, is that it's too much information in the wrong hands. Um, I compare it to the fact that you could probably find directions how to remove your spleen on the Internet. But do I think that's a good idea? No. Been there, done that. Yes. <laughs> uh, have the scars. Uh, That said, the information is invaluable and the genie will not be put back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. But you're not getting all the information. You're not getting really detailed ideas of condition. You're not getting a notion of what period the piece was painted in of the artist's career. Was it early, middle, or late? Was it in a declining period? Was it in his mature and best period? So you get a lot of information, which I think, to my mind, has has in some ways cannibalized the market. Because people are, at one time, full of the hubris of the information that they think that they have, and then reticent to act on it because they're not really sure. And in a wobbly market anyway, mm-hmm. um, information misused is a lost opportunity often. I hear a lot of people throwing numbers around where they say, uh, the middle market is tough, the lower market is tough, the higher end market is pretty solid. Uh, what is your take on that? What are, when we're talking numbers, the five to $10,000 painting, uh, what's happened to that market and then above? Well, the strongest market is the high, high end at this point contemporary market, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it's also the most volatile of all of the markets. You know, old masters, 19th century, uh, there are track records for all of those um, all of those artists and resources to go back and gauge what the uh, what the trajectory is going to be of that market. But uh, I think so much of the high end contemporary is again a bit of the misuse of the marketing tools that we have. Uh, you know, I fear unlike as we see in the John Gale collection, that a lot of people are buying expensive multiples of Andy Warhol less because they're desperate to have an image of Mao Zedong on their wall than perhaps they are for someone to say, you paid $75,000 for that screen print. John Gale's collection wasn't put together that way. He started slowly and conservatively, uh, educated his mind and his eye, and came up with a really wonderful and quite encyclopedic collection. 
I like a lot of things you just talked about. First of all, when a lot of people are buying art, you know, they, they look to uh, art databases, ArtFact, ArtNet, AskArt, things like that. And they look at these and say, okay, this sold for that, so I'm going to pay this for it. And it's kind of like takes the emotion away from it. And also, uh, artists do go through times in their life. A lot of times you hear um, this artist was, you know, hit the bottle after a certain time and his paintings are, are muddy or Thomas Hill had a stroke and, and you know, his paintings were uh, very sketchy after he had his, his stroke. And so there are differences in the times when people painted. And I've heard this phrase, tell me if you ever heard this, that every really good artist has about three masterpieces. Have you ever heard anything like that? No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a little tough. I think a lot of them have a few more than than that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I do agree with you that uh, pricing is really the tip of the iceberg. And uh, especially condition uh, means a great, great deal. And I know that the John Gale collection, for example... Uh, the pieces are in very, very good, as close to original condition as possible. And in the, uh, in, the, in the price guides, you really don't always get a sense of what the exact condition it is in because there isn't the, the, the space limitation for it. And also with watercolors, how toned they are, how, how faded. Uh, there's a lot of information that you just can't get by the words and the numbers. You have to filter that through some experience and through the guidance of people who have been looking at the material for a long time. I talked to a person a while back. I did a podcast with a guy that didn't even own a computer. And I really wanted to talk to him when I met him in Texas because his take on the whole thing was all about what you're actually looking at in front of you. Um, and, And of course, you know, the artist always plays in there. But here's, I, I like to quote a lot of things that my father told me uh, growing up in this business. And one of them is, he said, never look at the signature first. And what my father meant by that was judge a painting by the painting first and then deal with the signature. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's great advice. And um, I did enjoy my academic training and Think that it's, I think that it's a very important adjunct for for people in the business. Uh, but the real the real determination of an eye is looking and looking and looking, and that you're really not able to get from books. And uh, being at auction for so long, and then I, I've been with the Antiques Roadshow very happily for its entire time span in the United States, was, which is now 17 years. And from that, you see an extraordinary variety of pieces, and that's what educates your eye. If you were to give advice to the novice collector out there, someone that's just considering collecting art, can you sort of give a, a place for them to start? I would start at the usual suspects. Uh, I would go to museums. I would look at... Uh, what's in their permanent collection. I would look at what the up-and-coming trends are with the exhibits that they're having. I would go to galleries. I would talk to gallerists. Uh, I would go to historical societies. Uh, Historical societies often have 
paintings by the members of the various art colonies that are in the area. You know, we're talking about Cape Ann now, but there's Santa Fe, there's Cos Cobb, there's Old Lyme. There are numerous colonies throughout the, uh, throughout the country. Uh, and then I would go to auction houses. And uh, early on, I would, I would probably suggest sitting on your hands and looking to see what the momentum is and really becoming comfortable with the art that you're interested in. Uh, I would also think that focusing on a particular period or style of artists, as, as John Gale did, in fact, um, is a good way to rein in your eye and your collection, to really hone in on what you enjoy the most and in that way collect the best from that period and style. I want to talk about fakes. I heard one of the biggest art dealers in New York say to me that he can, after 45 years in the business, he can still be wrong 10% of the time. And they're out there. Matter of fact, more art is fake than about anything else that I can think of. How would someone protect themselves against buying fakes? That's, uh, that's a great question and a really difficult question um, because of so many different aspects of the business. There's a new book out, Caveat Emptor, now that talks uh, about fakes. And uh, I was listening to a, um, a, a radio discussion about that. And one of the things that's interesting is Van Meegeren, for example, who faked Vermeer's uh, in the early 20th century. When you look at them now, you're shocked that people could be fooled by them. So every generation brings its own preconception of what a painting by that artist should look like. So you already have a mindset of what it should look like. Second of all, you want it to be right. So there's, there's a human nature aspect in it that is perhaps more forgiving than it should be. And then if you have someone who is actively trying to fool the market, it's doubly difficult. You know, there are a lot of fakes out there. There are no unsigned ones, of course. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of fakes, and people make lots of mistakes, and people try, and they work hard. But uh, it's going to happen anywhere where there's large amounts of money to be spent and uh, traded. That's right. Yeah. And again, it's, it's a matter of educating your eye, but mistakes will be made, and the technology of faking now is so extraordinarily sophisticated that it's becoming more and more and more difficult. What's protection against buying a fake? Like if you go into a shop, an antique shop, you go to an auction and you think it's right, the auctioneer thinks it's right, the shop owner thinks it's right, and then you find out later from the specialist with that artist that it's it's fake. What, where do you go? Well, the, the industry standard is that your money is returned, um, which is co completely appropriate. I think, though, that one should be comfortable with their purchase before they make it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so often I'll be appraising something that someone bought in slightly suspicious circumstances, um, you know, at a yard sale or something, and didn't really research it, and, and the piece isn't right. And they're disappointed. Well, disappointment is one thing, but spending a great deal of money for something um, and regretting it 
is a, di a different issue. That said, uh, the Rembrandt Committee has gone back, I'm quite sure, on a couple of decisions that they made regarding the authenticity of some Rembrandts. Hmm. So the whole field of expertise is a very fluid one. Some of the experts who completely believe decades ago, are their opinions are now put into some question. So there are purposeful fakes, and then there are mistakes, and then there is the issue of changing scholarship. So it's not something that you can put a finger on and say, this is for a forever judgment. Um, it's very fluid. I've had, uh, there's a few artists that I know fairly well, and this, uh, I'm just wondering if this happens to you. Your first instinct, as soon as you see it instantly, is whatever it ends up usually being. Does that happen with you? It does, but uh, having been at auction where, as, as you know, the mandate is volume, sometimes you don't get to, you only get that first look. And oftentimes it's right. If something doesn't, if something doesn't fit, it's always a red flag. But again, this goes back to knowing the good, better, and best examples of an artist's work or when his best period was, if he was better at watercolor than he was at oil painting. Um, there are just, there are, I mean, I think connoisseurship and gut instinct is extremely important. But I think that in the, the vast international market we have now, there's a, there are a lot of things to consider. We've had a number of guests that have that are actively on the Antiques Roadshow, and I've never asked this question. What's it like being, since you were there from the very beginning, and I think the very first one was in Concord, Mass., is that right? The very first one was in Concord, Concord Massachusetts, and I think we had less than 1,000 people come. And now we have routine, you know, we turn away at 10,000 sometimes. Is that right? Yes. What's the Antiques Roadshow changed in your life? Well, the biggest change has been my my relationship with my colleagues. Uh, in the past, uh, dealers and representatives from the different auction houses have been you know, something of competitors. You know, we were all looking at the same material, and now they've become great colleagues and friends. Um, the Antiques Roadshow has been a great personal and professional gift to me. Um, I've met wonderful people, really come to understand the regionalism in the United States, why mm -hmm. a Drisdale in New Orleans and a Drisdale in Massachusetts are two very different things. It's just been a wonderful experience, and people, people really love it. People love the show. You know, I'm a, I'm a painting junkie, so 10,000 <laughs> paintings a day is just getting started. How does that work? People come in with their item, and are they screened at all? No, uh, no, they're not. Uh, there's a triage table, which is absolutely the the best phrase for it, where <laughs> the the big topics are separated out, where prints and ceramics and furniture are sent to the appropriate tables. But uh, all of the experts sit behind our desk and take a look at whatever is presented to us. What's the most extraordinary thing that you've ever seen on the roadshow that you actually were involved with? Well, it was actually in the 2012 season. A gentleman in Corpus Christi brought in a painting by Diego Rivera. Really? Wow. Yes, it was acquired by his grandfather in the 1930s in Mexico City and was brought back to Texas. 
it was hanging behind a door, so it was in quite good condition when time and tide changed, the painting came to be appraised and authenticated. It turned out that the piece was a very early and missing Diego Rivera, and actually a, a, a seminal painting in his career, one that may have awarded him the opportunity to travel to Europe and study. What was interesting to me is, in being early, it's not the sort of the monolithic, you know, quintessential uh, Riveras that you think of him as, but the subject was a peasant. Uh, so the, the subject was something that Rivera was always very interested in, and the quality and style and sentiment of the piece was undeniably strong. Uh, and we estimated that at between 800000 and a $800, million dollars retail. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. I love Diego Rivera's work. I've, I've stared at his murals in San Francisco for like an hour apiece, you know, the two different murals out there. It's just amazing. amazing. No, he was. He was. Yeah. This has been a real pleasure talking with you today. For me as well. Thank you, Martin. All right. Thanks so much. This is Martin Willis with Colleen Fesco, and we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.